Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Michael Coles. I'm the author of Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life. And if you want a shortcut to success and networking, all the things that are important to building your career going forward, you need to tune in to Travis Chapel. If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top-rated show committed to helping you master content networking, foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis Chappell. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I'm sitting down with Michael Coles. Michael Coles is a transformational leader, accomplished entrepreneur, education advocate, and motivational speaker. After a successful 19-year career in the clothing business, he tested his entrepreneurial skills in 1977 when he co-founded the Great American Cookie Company with an investment of only $8,000. And then after the Great American Cookie Company was a success, he sold the company in 1998 with sales over $100 million. Then he took over the corporate reins over at Caribou Coffee Company as chairman, CEO, and president. And then over the next five years from 2003, 2008, 
Michael more than doubled the size of the company, extending the brand reach domestically and abroad. And in September 2005, he successfully took the company public on NASDAQ under the symbol CBOU. So this guy is, when we talk about tried and tested entrepreneurs, Michael Coles is definitely towards the top of that list. And I can't wait to get into the conversation that we're about to have. But before we get into that conversation really quickly, if you are a podcast host or a content host, or you like to be a guest on podcasts or on other pieces of content, uh, then you're going to want to head over to guestio.com. That's guestio.com. It's a uh, software that my team and I put together recently that helps connect high-level podcast hosts and content hosts with high-level guests for their shows. Uh, So if you are one of those two types of users, then be sure to head over to guestio.com, set up your free profile and start browsing through some of the amazing guests and shows that we have built up over there. That's guestio.com. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I'm happy to be here. And it's nice, especially in this environment, to have an opportunity to talk to you and a lot of other people. So I'm glad to Yes, definitely. Podcasting definitely allows us to be able to get the word out when there's not a lot of other ways to get the word out anymore. It's also nice not to be wearing a mask. (laughs) (laughs) That's very true. Makes conversation a little bit more difficult. No kidding. Well, Michael, uh, there's so much to get into here. So I want to go ahead and jump in. Let's start all the way back. Let's take it all the way back. Talk to me about childhood Michael. Let's say 10, 11-year-old Michael. Talk to me about family life and culture, where you grew up, and how that impacted the decisions that you made coming out of high school. Okay. Well, when I was 10, started 10, my dad, we lived in a suburb of Buffalo, New York. My dad was, I would say we were upper middle class. I say that because, you know, at 16, my brother was got a car and my dad went bankrupt though when I was 10. And I had no idea, of course, at 10 what bankruptcy meant. It just meant that when I came home from school, there was a panel truck parked in front of our house. Uh, we had lost the house. Every All of our possessions were in this truck and we were moving back to a, what would be a two flat. Mm. Uh, where we lived on the bottom floor and the owners of the building lived upstairs. But, you know, life didn't seem uh, that different because we still had all of our furniture. I guess you say we had our stuff. And so, you know, we had only lived in the house four years, so it would seem okay. But by the time I was 13, my dad always thought that he would be able to rebuild his life and get back on his feet. So he continued living a lifestyle that was above our means. And by the time I was almost 13, was his wages were being so garnishy that he was barely bringing home a paycheck. And literally in the middle of the night, we moved from Buffalo, New York to Miami, Florida, which was Florida was a debtor's state. And so my dad thought once again, he'd be able to rebuild, get his life back, you know, by not least being able to bring home a paycheck. But things were not like they had been when we moved from the house. We basically lived in a, about a 300 square foot one bedroom apartment. My parents slept on a screen porch. My sister and I had to share a room and I literally woke up. I'm, this is really the beginning of my career. I woke up that morning realizing I could have two choices. I could believe my dad would rebound and that life would get back to the way it was, or I could try to get some work and try to help my family. Hmm. And that's what I chose to do. And so my literally my business career began when I was just about 13 years old. Wow. What was the first thing that you did? I was a beach boy. You know, you could get a job pretty easily on Miami Beach. Uh, Getting up early in the morning, I would get up at five before school. I would head to a hotel, throw out the mats, put out the umbrellas. And by the time I was done doing that, then I would go to school. And then after school, I would come back and take down the umbrellas and sweep and put the mats away. And then on weekends, I was lucky enough 
to get a job as an apprentice, uh, working with a kind of a handyman, but a guy did, he was a, he was a licensed carpenter, electrician and plumber. So I would work Saturdays and Sundays with him. Hmm. And, you know, back then, you know, it was a, it was a way to make a living, way to make some money and give it to my family. Yeah, no kidding. What was your school experience like having to work two jobs in the morning and after you got off? You know, it's really interesting that you may be the first person that ever keyed in on that (laughs) because I had been an A student up until we moved to Florida. Mm. And I went from an A student to basically D's and F's because I just never had, I was exhausted. Yeah, no kidding. I really never had any time to do my homework. I managed to get through seventh grade and then failed eighth grade and repeated it and barely got through it the second time. Yeah. And so my academic career, even all the way through high school, was pretty poor uh, because I continued to work all the way through high school. And what about with like with friends and social circles and stuff? Did that prohibit you from being able? I got to think that it's got to take a hit in your ability to socialize with kids that are your same age when you're living completely different lives and you're shouldering adult-like responsibilities as a 13-year-old. Well, yeah, it did. I mean, I didn't get to do a lot of the things my friends got to do. You know, I never went to a prom. I mean, I I never did any of that. But, you know, the truth is it was, when I look back at it, honestly, even during the time, I really felt like I was doing something worthwhile and I became older than my years you know, and just had this responsibility uh, to help my family. And so while I missed out on some things, you know, by the time I was 18 years old, I was a pretty school business guy. You know, I I had met my mentor, Irving Settler, who owned the clothing store that I went to work for. And I started at 13, basically sweeping floors and being a stock boy. And by the time I was 16, I was literally managing the store and doing all the buying. Wow. So it could have been different. It probably would, I probably would have had a little more fun here and there. Yeah. But on the other hand, you know, I learned an awful lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, and built the habits of hard work, I think, is one of the biggest takeaways there. It's not even just the knowledge that you got. It's just to be able to, at that young of an age, instill the, yeah, the habit of Working that hard, I feel like, had to have a big impact in your career going forward. And the other thing I would say about Irving, I mean, he was obviously my first major mentor. And it gave me throughout my entire life a sense of turning, of play, paying that forward. And as my life got better, I one of the things I've always continued to is mentor. I encourage people, if you've gotten to a place in your life where you can do it, here I am all these years later, and I'm still talking about my first mentor. Yeah, and right. so you just don't realize the impact you might have on somebody's life. Yeah, that's so huge. So talk to me about post high school then for you. If academics weren't strong in high school, I'm assuming that you weren't somebody that was gung-ho about going to college, right? Let me take you back a little bit. So uh, my senior year of high school, I went to live with my brother. And okay. my brother uh, lived in Rockport, Massachusetts. I was in a school where my graduating class in Miami Beach would have been about 1,200 students. Wow. I moved to a town where my graduating class was 52. And, uh, <laughs> a little bit of a difference. Yeah, I had to do so. I had to work a little to earn money to live with my brother, but it wasn't the kind of work that I had to do when I was living in Miami. And I became an honor roll student that year and actually did get into, I was going to go to uh, 
Arizona State University. I got into Arizona State. And the reason it was Arizona State, I had a friend that moved out there and encouraged me to come out there. That was my plan after school, was to save money to be able to go to college. And then a twist of fate, I got offered a job when I was literally 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't going to take the job. But the guy that recommended me said, look, you know, if you go to college, you'll probably come out of college and this is the kind of job you're going to try to get. Yeah. And he said, Why don't you just do this for a year? And if you don't like it, you can always go to college. I remember this. I called uh, Arizona State and asked them if I could get a one-year deferment. Yeah. And they gave it to me. And so I had this little thing in the back pocket you know, right, of right. a year. Well, as, and as things would go... It turned out, you know, to be a career building job and I wound up never going to college. So talk to me about that first career type job that you had. What was the thing that propelled you forward to really stick in that and make it a career building type of a job? Obviously, through the description of my childhood, I didn't grow up with an affluent child. <laughs> yeah, right. You know? So yeah, all, maybe maybe when you were seven, but not when you were yeah, 15. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so people were always telling me my limits. When mm. I was 20, I looked really, really young. I mean, I probably looked honestly when I was 20, I could have told someone I was 14 and they would have believed it. Mm. I was not one of those guys at 20 that but didn't have to go and show their you know, a card to buy a drink. Yeah, that, you know? that's me. That's you me. were probably. Well, I was definitely probably, that guy. Yeah. yeah. When, yeah. I, when I was 15, yeah. The, when I was 15, yeah, I could pass for 20. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I was not like that. So to have the kind of job that I was offered, even as I was a trainee initially, and then I got my own territory when I was 21. And the territory I got was the worst territory in the whole company. And people after I, and then when I got there, there were counts that I called on in the clothing business that basically felt sorry for me. They said, why would you have taken this job? It was the worst territory. The company had sold everyone. We threw them out. Hmm. And, you know, I had that fighter instinct. You know? I was, I was going to say that right there is it, that, that right there tells me everything I need to know about you, Michael, yeah. because like that, <laughs> no. t- there's two different types of people in that situation. There's the people that buy into all of the excuses and all of the reasons why they can't make this work. And they would quit and then blame it on the company. They'll quit and then they'll be like, that company sucked. Everybody I called told me it wasn't going to work. Like it was bad and nobody would have been able to have been successful there. But instead... I- you yeah. don't do that. I couldn't even get our clothing retailers to, I couldn't even get in to see them. Mm. They wouldn't even look at the line. But I figured something out in Michigan, and that was, I'll tell you this real quickly, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which was part of my territory, mm-hmm. was literally 400 miles from where I lived in Grand Rapids to get all the way across the Upper Peninsula. And what I learned on my first trip up there, salesmen never went. They just never went. If you mm. had a retail store in the Upper Peninsula, you had to go to a clothing show. Well, it didn't take me long to figure out that what I needed to do was spend time. Until I could flip it, where the majority of my business could come from down below, I started making trips up there. And they were so grateful to see a salesman actually walk in. <laughs> a <the> person, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they started, instead of buying where they were just buying pants or jeans, they started buying shirts and sport jackets and So the accounts became bigger and bigger accounts. And at the same time, I was working my way through lower peninsula accounts and eventually took that territory, which was 73 out of 73. And the last year I was there, it was number three in the country. 
Wow. How long did you end up working at that job? Two and a half years, almost three years. And And I left because I was doing more business in Western Michigan than they were doing in the Thumb, which was Detroit. And that was during Detroit's heyday. Wow. I was doing more business outside of the, outside of the thumb. And so when the territory became available, my boss, a guy named Bob Lures, I called him up and said, look, I want to move to Detroit and I want the whole state. And I'll hire someone to work for me to take over Western Michigan, but I want Detroit. And he started laughing and he said, you're number three in the country. You know, you just started making money. He said, you're not ready for Detroit you know, I guess I was 22 or 23. And he said, he said, you're 23. You know, you look 18. No one's going to want to buy from you. They're going to laugh at you in Detroit. And basically I said to him, Bob, if you don't give me the territory, this was in September. I said, I'm telling you now I'm gone in January. And he just laughed again. And about three months later, when they shipped me the new line, which was for spring, which was for, you know, summer, I called him up. I said, what do you want me to do with all, the, all these boxes? And he said, what do you mean? I want you to go out and sell it. I said, Bob, I'm gone. I, yeah, I told job. you. Yeah. <laughs> I already took another job. Anyway, he flew in. He tried to talk me out of taking this other job. And so I moved to Detroit and took over this new company line. And it was very successful. I made four times as much money my first year with the company, my biggest year in HIS. But the best part of it was, Bob and I, by the way, till he died, we were the best of friends. Hmm. Every time one of my customers would run a full page ad, I'm talking back then, you know, this is like Hudson's department store. And there was a big chain called Use Hatcher Suffering, who were the accounts, they would run a full page ad. I would send the copy of the ad to Bob with a little note that said, you're right. No one will ever buy from me in Detroit. <laughs> and he was a, he was a, he actually wound up becoming president of the company. He was my sales manager. He was a really wonderful guy. And I talk about him in my book. That's funny. So next stage of the career, how long do you end up doing? Because I know that you end up being in clothing for a couple of decades. Is that right? Yeah, 19 years. And then just through a quirk of fate, I was in California at a clothing show and I saw a cookie store in the mall. I had three young kids and I was traveling an awful lot. The industry was moving to Asia and I knew instead of traveling three days a week, I was going to probably have to start traveling three weeks a month. And so I came back from that show after seeing this cookie store. There's a long story about it in my book. But when I came back, I told my wife, I'm not sure what we're going to do for the rest of our lives. But while we're trying to figure it out, let's open up a cookie store, like one cookie store. And so I never thought it was going to be my business. But, you know, I didn't know anything about the food business, but I liked the margins of the cookie business. And I figured until I figured out what I was going to really do, it would be a way to have some income. And so, you know, I wound up doing it with a partner whose wife had like the greatest chocolate chip cookie recipe I had ever had. We did it together. We opened up the one store it opened up extraordinary. There's a long story about that too in the book. A funny story how we almost burnt them all down the first day, but that's another story. <laughs> yeah, so you have to get the book to read that one. Yeah. I haven't sent you my book, huh? Uh, no, I, I got a copy of it. Oh, good. Yeah, yes, good. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, so six weeks after we started the company, I was involved in a near fatal motorcycle accident. I was told I'd never walk normally again. I would always need some type of aid, canes or crutches. You know, it stopped everything else I might have been able to do. Because back then, you couldn't go into a job interview on a walker. 
I mean, there was no ADA laws back then. And, you know, the truth is, is that I was not in any shape uh, to try to do something else in my career. And so I wound up while I was going through major rehab, learning how to walk again, I wound up, you know, focusing on the cookie business. And by the time I was walking, we had about 20 stores. And I literally woke up one morning and thought, well, maybe this is what I'm supposed to do. Wow. And started really focusing on the business. You know, we started the business with only $8,000. We wound up becoming the largest franchisor of cookie stores in the United States. We took that $8,000 to a $100 million business by the time we sold it. So, Wow, that's incredible. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So much to unpack there. And I want to keep going on the story because I, I know that you talk a lot about the crash and, and how that helps shape your career. And uh, so we try to try to always talk about the things that other people don't get to. So give us a quick synopsis of like what you view that crash setting up the rest of your life for, and maybe just a lesson or two that you took away from that. And then we'll move on to the next part of the story. As I said earlier, I mean, all through my life, people had always told me what my limits were. Yeah. And so it always gave me this incentive to prove them wrong. And about nine months after my accident, I was still on two canes. My daughter, who was three years old at the time, asked me to race her to the mailbox. We were going up to get the mail. And when I took off to run, the pain was excruciating. It was literally the first time since my accident that I realized I was disabled. Hmm. And I, before I could even make an excuse to her, she just looked up at me and said, daddy, you know what? I'm really too tired to run to the mailbox. She knew what was going on. And it was devastating because what I realized I was not just disabled in my legs. I had been disabled in my mind. Hmm. It was the first time in my life that doctors had told me what my limits were and the pain of learning to do all of this. He kind of, 
put me in that safety zone. I came back in the house and told my wife, Donna, there was no way I could live the rest of my life like this. I had to try something different. And so I began a self-style rehabilitation program that eventually, you know, was to get more flexibility and strength in my legs. And it eventually took me from a stationary bike to a regular bike. And at the same time, we built the cookie company to its national success. I not only learned to walk again, but set three world records riding across the United States on said bicycle. Wow. Yeah, that's incredible. What was the most difficult part of the actual trips that you did, the actual like cycling that you did? Because I'm sure, I mean, that's got to take a huge toll mentally and physically. So what were a couple of the, like, were there any times where you really felt like, ah, why am I even doing this anymore? Every day. (laughs) Both through training. So the first time I went across the country and set this record, I knew I needed it to feel like I had my physical life back. But then I knew it was not my best effort because I, again, was not prepared for a kind of what, what you have to go through to get across the country. Yeah. And so I knew I could do it again. I, I knew I could do better. So in 83, I set out again from Savannah to San Diego and I was going to break my record by over five days. And I would have actually, if I hadn't crashed, I got hit by a dust devil, which is a dwarf tornado and broke my collar. But I'm going to get through this real quick. So in 84, I rode across the country again. This time I had horrible winds, but I got across the country. I broke my record by over four days, across the country in 11 days, eight hours, 15 minutes. And then in 89, I joined a four-man team to do the race across America. We went from LA to New York. We won the race across America. We crossed the country in five days, one hour, eight minutes. Both records still stand, by the way, to today. Here's the thing I want, let me just say about it. One is that, I probably learned more about business during those four crossings than anything I ever did in business in my life. Because the two lessons were, one, is that it doesn't really matter how many miles you ride or how, how many thousand miles you ride, how many hours you train, weeks, days, months, whatever it is. The most important thing, especially in 84, where the winds were so bad getting across the country, what I realized if you don't finish the last five miles, you will never be prepared for the next five miles. You've got to get through this stuff. I mean, I run through it. We all do. In business, you run into stuff that is just not working out the way you plan. You've got two choices. You can just give up or you can say, I'm going to finish this. I'm going to learn from it so that I can move on and make sure I don't make the same mistakes in the next time I attempt to do something that's either a new product or a new process, I can learn from this. You know, Bobby Jones, greatest amateur golfer that ever lived said, I never learned anything from a golf tournament I won. And all of us learn more from things that don't go right. So many amazing lessons to take away from this, Michael. And maybe we can do a part two interview. I feel like I'm saying that a lot recently on the show, but um, there's so many other areas to take this. But I do want to get into the next venture that you did, which was Caribou Coffee. What was the main driving factor for you to jump back into business after having a successful sale, like a successful sale, right? Like you didn't just come out with a couple million bucks. You sold a hundred million dollar company, a nine figure exit. What was the biggest factor that drove you back into building a new business? All through my career, starting at 13, I would say working for Irving at Dorwins, I never had the opportunity to work with a brand that I would call a brand religion. Even though it wasn't the biggest, 
it was, you know, I, I can compare it not in the same size, but, you know, Apple Computer, Harley Davidson, these are companies that went through tremendous trials. Yeah. I mean, companies that almost went out of business, both of them almost went out of business. And what kept them was the loyalty of their customers. Their mm. customers were like evangelists. If you were driving a Honda and your friend had a Harley, they would come down on you. You go, what yeah. are you doing? You got to drive an Ameri. You got to drive a Harley. Yeah. And the same thing, people who had PCs, if they were had a friend that had an Apple computer, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, Caribou was like that. When I did that, I started out as a consultant doing this project. And what happened was during the course of doing this project, I realized that almost all the stores I went to, I would see someone wearing a Caribou baseball cap or carrying a uh, or wearing a Caribou t-shirt. Mm. And I thought to myself, then and now, I have never seen anyone wearing a Starbucks baseball cap or a Starbucks t-shirt. I'm not saying they don't have mugs, but that makes sense. Sure. And I thought to myself, if they're willing to wear that name, this is a company that I can turn around. This is a company we can make into mm. a great company. And so it was the excitement of working with a brand where the base of customers were like, they were hungry for Caribou to be more successful. Yeah, you know, right. Get me a Caribou in my town. I mean, yeah. I would hear that over and over again. You know, I loved Caribou. I get it in the airport all the time. I wish there was one here. I wish there was one there. Yeah. And then the other opportunity, of course, came the brand was so strong. I knew that we could, they didn't have a commercial sales division, you know, big box retailers, grocery stores. I, you know, I went on, went off on a limb and knew that that grocery stores and people in towns who had caribou in an airport, but right. maybe didn't have a caribou in Tucson, but they could buy it at the grocery store. I knew we could build that business. We built a big online presence as well. And then we did a number of strategic licensing. We did ice cream. We did a breakfast bar. We did a number of projects like that. All of it was to broaden the reach of the brand. How do you start making decisions like that as you come in as the CEO? Like when you're looking in, you're, you obviously were looking at this company with a pair of opportunity glasses on, right? Like you were looking to see where can I make this better? What can I do? How do you start prioritizing the action list there? Or is it like a shotgun, like let's blast all of these, see which one works a little bit and then focus in on that? Like what's the strategy? It was, yeah, it was not a shotgun. I came into the company. I screwed up my first day there. So it took me a while to get the team on board because this is the first time I was working in any business where people were not coming there because of my vision. I was now coming into a company that already had their own vision. I would say they were being held back by the fact they were a really good company. Hmm. They were not great. And the good was keeping them from being great. And so I came in with a whole plan of how we were gonna build this business. And the people who loved the brand that were there, they got all excited you know, within a month of what we could do. A lot of them were scared, their CFO, you know, thought I was, you know, completely off the wall. As an example, we were selling in the food industry when you're in the grocery business, you talk about how many stores you're in by doors. Hmm. Okay, how many doors you're in. Yeah. And so when I got there, we were in eight doors. Okay. Eight, not like 80, eight. And it was all in Minneapolis. And we were roasting coffee in five different locations and then consolidating and shipping out of one. It was a ridiculous system. 
I said, the only way we're going to really be able to go off the grocery store business is we need to put everything in one plant. And again, these people <laughs> looked at me like I was nuts. <laughs> so we built, we did a build to suit, which was a, I think somewhere between 11 and 14 million dollar project, over a hundred thousand square foot building we built before we had any more business than what we had. And I remember sitting in the office the day we were signing the contract and our CFO looked at me, this guy, George, and he said, you know, if you don't get this company really moving, this is going to be the biggest mistake we've ever made. And I looked at him and I said, George, if we don't get this company where it needs to go, this is the least of our problems. <laughs> and, and so I hired a guy from Coca-Cola, a guy named Henry Stein. There was no way to justify his salary, you know, to bring him in, but he was the right guy. I knew he was tenacious and he would go call on all the right customers. And in five years time, we went from eight doors to 22,000 doors. Wow, you know, that's so, incredible. So it was a big risk, but we had to do it or we, were in a, we weren't going to get anywhere. Yeah, man, I love this conversation so much, Mike. I do want to talk to you a little bit about networking before we move on and sure. uh, finish this up. Who you know or what you know, Michael, which of those two is more important and why? I think I would I'd answer that question by saying, I think it's important for you to know what you don't know and then surround yourself with people who really are experts, both as friends or business associates, as well as the people you bring into your company. I think one of the hardest thing for young entrepreneurs, and I talk to a lot of millennials about this, is that sometimes you think you have to have all the answers. Yeah. And you're almost afraid to bring somebody in that may be smarter than you in a particular area. You got to yeah. let that go. You just got to remember that if they're smart and they do well, it makes you look better. And you don't have to have, you don't have to be the smartest guy in the room. You just have to have the vision. And then you learn from each other and you pull each other along to the success that you're both aiming for. And to me, that's one of the reasons why I think networking, which I know is, you know, kind of your love, right? Yeah. I think it's just so important because especially when you have the opportunity to do networking and business like associations where you get to sit at a table. I remember early on in the cookie company, I went to a meeting of uh, CEOs and I was sitting with the CEO of McDonald's at the same table I was at. And man, I just sat there picking his brain, you know, yeah. learn, you know, here we only had about 40 stores at the time. And how do you build that? How do you, what do you think about franchising, which is what we were doing? And yeah, all of that is just so important. But I'm telling you, the great lesson is know what you don't know. That's what makes great leaders. Yeah, love that advice. What would you say, we've already kind of talked about it and you, you talked about how important of a role mentorship was in your life. What would you say to somebody out there who maybe, maybe is looking at hiring a coach or a mentor and actually paying to get somebody to work with them on that type of a basis, but just unsure about all the nuances and maybe a little bit worried about spending money for something like that. What would you say to somebody that might be well, in a situation like that? Yeah, I think those, depending on where you go, but I've known, I have sent many, many of my team members to those type of places to learn executive training and having them identify what they think may be a weakness that they have. Yes, you certainly can find it sometimes in a mentor, but boy, you got to get lucky too. I mean, mm -hmm. you gotta really got to make sure you have a mentor that's really ready to, to be a mentor, that's willing to give you the time, as opposed to someone that's not taking your phone call. Sometimes, you know, you just have to go to a professional and let them give you some advice. And I think 
it's generally money very well spent. I've seen it work within organizations that I've, that I've led. You know, I've also been in the banking business and we basically had a, a line on our budget for exactly that, for mm. people, for development. I don't think one necessarily is better than the other. Yeah. If you can have both, I think it's It's great. good to have both. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. Love that, man. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Michael. I, like I said, I, I wish we could keep talking, but I, we're already a little bit past time. So I want to be respectful of your time here and move on to the last segment. Something I like to call the random round. Just a few quick random questions with some quick random answers. Ready? Okay. What profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt? I think I would have liked to have been an actor. I think I would have liked to have been in the entertainment business. I think a lot of business people were all in the entertainment business. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Fair but enough. I think yeah. it would be fun to have to get, actually get paid for it. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> if you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and chat for an hour, who would it be? Warren Buffett. I just think it would be so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It would be like picking the brain of the smartest investor to have ever lived potentially, right. especially definitely of our time. That would be a lot of fun for sure. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? And then tell me one of your favorites of the uh, platforms that you pick. I love books. Now, of course, audiobooks are great because you can listen yep. while you're driving. I mean, I think, I mean, podcasts are fantastic as well. But my probably my very, very favorite book is two books. One is called Execution, which is written by Larry Bossidy and Rod, Ram Shadon. It's a great book. And the other one is a book that you can hardly find anymore. It was written by David Habersham, who's a historian. It was called, oh my God, it's gone out of my head. I'll think of it in a minute. Okay. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. I get up at five every morning. I have a quick cup of coffee and work out for about an hour. Then go to my computer and deal with emails. I generally work about four hours in the morning. Uh, just cleaning up stuff. I'm on I'm on Mountain Time, so I got two hours to catch up with everybody on Eastern Time, mm. and so it generally gives me a good head start on the day. So that's that's my general routine. What is your go-to pump-up song, Michael? Old Time Rock and Roll by Bob Seger. I don't even have to think about that. <laughs> Putting business aside, nothing business here. What is something just in life generally that you're just not very good at? I'm the worst baseball player <laughs> in the history of baseball. I don't think I can throw a ball 20 feet. And by the way, the name of the book is The Reckoning. The Reckoning. Okay, awesome. By David Halber Halberstam, yeah. Perfect. As we get everything wrapped up here, Michael, what's the best place for listeners to connect with you more? MichaelColes.com, just like this podcast. A lot of speaking stuff is on there. There's a lot of podcasts on there. And I would say that a pretty dynamic website. We just completely re rebuilt it. Awesome. Awesome. So head over to MichaelColes.com dot com to hear more about Michael, his story, and uh, get some of the things that he's putting out there. Also, if you're listening to this right now, be sure to go pick up a copy of his book, Time to Get Tough, How Cookies, Coffee, and a Crash Led to Success in Business and Life. Highly recommend picking up a copy of Michael's book. Anytime that you can learn from somebody who's done as many things successfully, done as many things well in their career as Michael has, you should definitely take up that opportunity. So go pick up a copy of his book, check out some of the stuff that he has working over there. Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. Had a blast chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com slash group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.